In this episode, we get a glimpse into the unique mindset of parkour pioneer and founder and CEO of Parkour Generations, Dan Edwards, as we talk about his journey of bringing a fringe activity to the mainstream and building a successful multinational company out of it, while touching on some fascinating concepts and great stories along the way. They wouldn't be afraid. And the reason they wouldn't be afraid is because there's no, they know there's no way they're going to try that. Right. Whereas if I ask them to look at a jump 10 feet away at the same height and say, think about jumping to that, now they will be afraid. And the reason they're afraid is because they, because it's possible. They look at it and sure. think that is within my capability. So what that teaches us is that fear, your fear is normally a signpost to what you are capable of. And therefore you should listen to it because it, you'll only be afraid of the things that you can probably do. I'm Fraser Quelch, and this is a TRX Procast, where we chat with the most iconic leaders in fitness to get the inside track on what it takes to thrive and succeed in the ever-changing landscape of business, training, and life. What shaped me is it isn't a question. I mean, I, I grew up in the when I was ten, it was what well, nineteen eighty-five. So I grew up in the eighties, and you know. It was all action movies and martial arts and uh, superhero comics um, and adventure stuff. And, and, you know, I grew up in the countryside, so we spent all day every day out in the woods. Um, you know, that was, it was very much an active physical lifestyle where we were seeking adventure and sort of emulating what we saw on, on the big screen in the movies and, and reading comics and trying to do that in the real world. So, you know, we, when Bruce Lee hit, um, we were... Uh, we were just copying all those, all the, all the martial art movies and trying to be like Bruce Lee and, and got into training in that way. And the, you know, the Rocky movies and all this sort of stuff. So really basic, really basic stuff. I mean, I was a basic kid, I'm sure. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we used to love living like that. You know, we used to spend every day, literally every day in the woods until we couldn't sort of thing. It wasn't like our parents had to say, go out and do stuff. The last thing, the last place we wanted to be was in the house. So, so every single day we would be down the woods, building camps, running through the woods, trying to catch deer. We shouldn't obviously can never do because they're much faster than us, but we'd try that sort of thing. Um, fighting with sticks, um, climbing trees, whatever. So, and we would do that until it was dark and we were covered in mud and, and blood and whatever. And then we'd come home and have dinner and, and then go to bed and do the whole thing again the next day. Pretty much. So it was, it was, um, it was a pretty wild upbringing in that way. Uh, and I just went very, I just went very intensively as I got older, I went very intensively into martial arts and those kind of ideas of physical training and practical skills and just was a little bit more zealous about it than most of my friends. And that. They, they kind of did it for a hobby was I was like, as I got older, I was, it just became more and more and more intensive and serious for me. So I was a bit weird probably as a kid. Well, it sounds like you got consumed by it so, but tell us let's back up a little bit so um you started at age eight your your, your martial arts so what was it that mm. like was a specific event that prompted you to seek out martial arts like was there you know kid at school who beat you up or was it just something you saw <laughs> the bruce lee movie that 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 uh that made you excited about trying to get into it what was it because that was your that was and it continues to be but your very first mm. you know love so to speak uh, physically i think yes yeah, yes, that and that and breakdancing actually. Oddly, at about the same time, I was really into breakdancing because I loved. Okay. Um, we got, you know, we were. I was also heavily into sort of the, what what now is termed old school hip hop, I guess. But then it was just hip hop. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm and, with uh, you. Yeah, exactly. The good stuff. Um, 
so you know and that i love that stuff and we were into and so we got into breakdancing at about the same time so we love bruce lee movies and breakdancing so we'd sort of train those really physically um and uh, i was at my my the school i was at the prep school i was at i don't know why but uh, my year, the whole, all of the people around me, the kids around me, they were, they were kind of, a lot of them were into similar stuff. So we spent most of our break times in between lessons and our sort of after school times basically fighting. So, and I, I don't know why, it was really weird. Um, but there was, it was kind of, it was almost like a fight club. It was some weird, I remember some weird stuff. Like, you know, it was like every, every day you'd meet in the changing rooms and it'd be like, okay, today you are going to fight you. Um, go and then every, all the kids would just watch and see who won and then they'd sort of plan the fight for the next day which now I look back I think that's really strange but at the time it was normal I don't know why it was just normal is what we did <laughs> so so therefore we got into martial arts because we were like well if we're going to be fighting every day we might as well get good don't want to lose <laughs> exactly yeah so our initial martial art training was watching movies and then trying to implement the stuff but actually in practice with other kids of our age so it wasn't like training in a dojo it was literally like does this work does this strike work does this throw work does can i can i can i beat this kid with that um and then i got into sort of um formal training i suppose as soon as i had the chance to actually go and learn from someone that knew what they're doing um but but that practical beginning was actually incredibly useful because mm. as i'm sure you know you know you can you can learn stuff from the beginning with, with the rules and you can be taught stuff from the start or you can kind of just find your way in stuff. And there are pros and cons to both, but the finding your way aspect at the start allows it to be very organic, very natural. Um, and you actually get to sort of test stuff out in a holistic way so that when you come to learn formally, you sort of got a, a reservoir of experience against which you can sort of pressure test the new things you're being taught and you can go, this works or this doesn't work. Um, and so for me, I, I, I knew that early on that what I that that way round had worked because I've been training it like that for about four years, I suppose. And then at about the age of 12, 13, I joined a, about 12, I think I, I, I um, started training in a, a karate school and did like a few, did like a few weeks there. Um, and then there was a great, there was a tournament. There was like a, an, an all England schools karate tournament. And the sen my sensei, um, he kind of saw that I sort of had some potential in that way. So he said, look, why don't you, let, I want to put you in this tournament. And I was like, dude, I've never fought in, my, in a tournament. What the hell? Um, and I didn't even have a belt. I was a white belt, right? And you have to have a belt to go to this tournament. So he basically did a super quick grading and said, there you go. There's a, there's a red belt, which is the first belt in that style or whatever. So he said, there you go. There's a red belt. Now you can, now we can take you to the tournament. So I was like, okay. So I'd literally done like five weeks of karate at that age. Uh, and I went to this tournament and all these like black belts and whatever. It was like up to 15 years old. And I was this kind of pretty scrawny sort of 12 year old red belt. Um, and uh, I went through the tournament and fought these other kids who were obviously much more experienced than me. But because I'd had all those years of experience of actual sort of fighting in playgrounds and things, mm -hmm. I, I, I was able to it was just, I only used like one or two things. I only used one or two techniques really um, the whole way through. But because I had the experience of timing um, and, and the sort of force on force experience, I was, I was able to beat them. So I just be beat one, then beat another one, then beat another one, beat and got, and I won the whole thing. So, really? <laughs> yeah. And I was like this six week training red belt, 12 year old beating these sort of 14, 15 year old black belt kids. They were I not happy. That pissed them off. I was just oh, man, they were 
they were super pissed. I remember we were like leaving with my trophy, waiting to be picked up by my mum and like these kids walking past me and they were just, you know, looking daggers at me. Um, and I was like, I didn't expect to win. I don't know what it was doing there. So, but that made me think later on, I, re- I kind of look back on that and realized that, okay, the only, the, the, the reason I won that was not because I was skilled in karate because I had, you know, no, no training it whatsoever in that particular style. But it was just that, um, I'd just been used to facing off against another kid and, and, and yeah, and just having to sort of work out what works and distancing and timing and those raw principles that they're the things that, you know, most of the time they're the things that kind of win you a combat scenario is those basic principles rather than some magical technique. So yeah, that was, that was really interesting. Um, and then, and I just got more and more into it from there and I, I didn't compete in tournaments for, for, for very long. Like I kind of didn't like the sport element of it too much. So I think I went back and did that tournament the next year and kind of defended my title, so to speak, right. uh, won, won that. And then, and then the third year after that, I think I didn't bother going back after that. I think pretty much that was the end of my tournament career. That's interesting what you say about, um, you know, you had like one or two techniques. Wasn't it Bruce Lee that said that don't fear the man of uh, who knows 10,000 punches or a thousand punches? Fear the one who's practiced one punch 10,000 times or one technique exactly, 10,000 yeah. times, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, just do those things really well and, and, um, and that's all you need, really. That's amazing. So, so that was, you said you practiced on your own in martial arts for four years. Not on my right? own. Not on my own, with other, with, with my friends uh, no. and, with my old, and with my older brother who, who was more experienced and he was studying a Chinese style at the time called Nampa Shuan. So he, so I would sort of learn bits from him and then we would, um, and, but then basically through me and a group of sort of three or four friends particularly were, were heavily into it. So we would train, we would fight all the time and, and just try and get better at this kind of you know, martial art concept, even though we didn't really know what we're doing. And we had influence from other places. There were more experienced people around me that I would kind of learn from, but it was, it was like um, patchwork training, you know. And, right. But as I say, it had some uses. Right. So, but so you've kind of form, formally started to get instructed at age twelve, and then that, and that, mm. and you got seriously into it, and it continued on, and continues on today, as I, as far as I understand. Like you're still, you're still kind mm. of training a little bit. Yeah. Um, now, what was it about parkour? So, like, how did you get into, because you, you were one of the, if not in the very first group, soon after, in, yeah. in, the whole, in the whole phase of parkour. So, can you tell me a little bit about that? What was it that introduced you to it in the first place? Because it was very, very fringe early on, mm-hmm. certainly when you were introduced to it, and it kind of a what time period. And then, yeah, just, just tell me a little bit, like, what was it that, that grabbed you? Yeah, um, that was, um, yeah, I, I came to parkour, I mean, parkour sort of, um, became sort of formalized as a discipline, let's say, in France in sort of sort of the late 90s. Um, and it became, it became known about in kind of 98, 99, when there was sort of, there was one TV ad, I think there was a documentary on French TV. And then in 2000, there was the movie Yamakasi, which, which is a, a Luc Besson film, which featured some of the founder guys from France. But, um, and I started in, I think, 2002. Um, and I was living in Japan at the time, training in a, in a, in a sword fighting discipline, which you can only study in Japan. So I was there to train in that. Um, but I saw the, I saw the, um, uh, the film because it was shown on theatres in France and Japan only, strangely. So I watched that and, and then watched a um, documentary, BBC Ident as well, like a TV ad that, that featured one of the other founders. And about the same time, and I kind of realized this is something going on here. These guys are not stuntmen. They're, they're moving in a way that seems superhuman. But I can tell they're not stuntmen. Obviously, I grew up watching loads of movies, so I was pretty 
movie savvy as most audiences are and i kind of you can tell you know you can tell when something's wild work you can tell when it's a stunt you can tell when it's cgi and watching those things i was like this is not cgi this is not wild work those guys are actually doing those jumps and there's no crash mats and things so uh, who are they? <laughs> that's not that's not normal. So I kind of researched it, found out who they were and what that was. And uh, again, started, I was living in Japan and managed to connect online with sort of the tiny European community that was at the time. There were literally like probably 30 people in the world that knew about it at that stage. Um, this is before YouTube or anything. So I managed mm-hmm. to track those guys down and, you know, people would pass information online. They would send links. They would send, um, they would stream videos and stuff. It took ages to download them. And, um, and that's how they communicated. And a forum. There was one forum in French that people used to communicate. Um, and then soon after that was a forum in English. Um, and, and so I was sort of connected with the community there, watching the videos of the early practitioners. And then basically, again, similar to my martial arts introduction, trying to emulate and copy it while I was living in Japan with another couple of friends of mine who were also interested in it at the time. And we would go out and try and just figure out how these movements were happening, how they were doing these things, uh, and try and replicate them. And then we created a training protocol around that, which now I look back, I think, oh my God, that was so, 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 so crazy, <laughs> crazy. That was not how we teach people now at all. But, um, but again, it, it, um, it, it worked. It was great fun. I loved it. And, um, it was really when I first went out, the first session I did, I still remember going out and doing a specific jump. Because again, we were just trying to find things that looked similar to what the French guys were doing. Um, so we found terrain that was similar. And I just kind of went out, found a jump that was not huge now, but it had a you know a drop, like a 20 foot drop. And if you didn't make it, it would have been not good, you know? So it's a don't F it up jump. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was one of those ones <laughs> was like, um, is what sometimes in, in, um, in French is called a, a reso uh, or like a, a true jump, you know, a real jump, like um, uh, as in you can't, you can't, you can't sort of half do it. You can't no. test it. You've got to do it first time. So, um, and, and I, you should never start with that. Right. But, but this was what no. I didn't know. was no one teaching back then. There were no teachers. Right. right. So, so it was like, okay, I'm going to see if I can do this. And, and I remember just feeling, you know, your heart starts to, to race and, uh, you start to breathe quicker and, and I remember thinking wow this is fear and I hadn't really felt fear for a long time I got so used to fighting and that's fear and I and I was quite comfortable in that area and then so I was like this is fear this is what fear feels like real visceral fear um, and you know I really in that feeling I remember thinking there's no reason to do this jump right you can you're you can, there's no watching there's no points there's no um you're not going to get any money this is before youtube so no one was even making videos of this stuff really other than to share with the community um so it was like you know you don't need to do this but part of me was like yeah but if i don't do it i will know that i didn't do it i will know that i couldn't do it that, that i stepped away from it um and that i let the fear decide and i didn't decide so i thought no i'm going to do it so i stayed there and and thought about it and realized I had the power and I could probably grab the wall on the other side and just jumped and did it and climbed up. And after I climbed out of that jump, I thought, you know, it was kind of, it was like, okay, this is, I'm going to do this probably forever now. It was kind of like, this is, I knew straight away, like that's, that's incredible to overcome that. Um, and you know, I thought this, I don't really get that from anything else. I hadn't, I, I didn't really feel that feeling in anything else, such a visceral test of your ability, um, in a real world scenario. I thought this is really rare now, so uh, this is I'm going to stick with this. So and and since then I've been I've been training, yeah. So interesting. Well, that's that's an amazing talk about like a, an epiphany based story um, of feeling like well well that was uh, that was it. 
Um, so tell me, so you, you must have wrapped up your training in Japan and moved back because you originally, as far as I understand the story, um, you, you trained with the, the parkour founders. Is mm. that correct? Yeah, so I, as soon as I found out about it, I was living in Japan, but I would come back from Japan in the summers because the summers in Japan are incredibly hot. And, um, and I, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm English, so I can't deal with, you know, really hot temperatures or I couldn't at the time. So, um, so I would come back to Europe in the summers. Um, so as soon as, pretty much as soon as I found out about it, when I came back in the summers, I would track down the community here um, and, and train with them and then go back to Japan and implement what I'd sort of practice and then come back the next summer and whatever. So um, I did that until 2004. But I was very lucky that in the early days, um, I one of the French practitioners was in the UK when I was in the UK one summer um, and we met and trained together um, and I realized that his skill there were pre probably 10 people in the UK doing it at that time mm -hmm. uh, and I remember seeing one of the French practitioners training with him and thinking okay this guy's so much better than any of the UK practitioners that I sort of met at that stage you know I'd mm -hmm. met him a couple of times I was like this guy's so much better he clearly really knows what he's doing I could see that that was where the discipline was at that these these guys have been training a long time they understood the discipline so I became friends with him I, tra I trained with him every day and then that's through him I got to know the French founders um uh, he was a second generation guy I suppose um and um and then yes yeah, so I managed to, to meet and train with them um and then some now, of them now, now hold on a second. I, I need to stop you for a quick second because this isn't like the kind of group that you just kind of like rock up to and say, "Hey, I'm here." Like, I mean, the original the because you're an understated person, so I want to make mm. sure that that um, I mean, this they call themselves the Yamakasi, <laughs> right? Which that's yeah. the original um, parkour founders. Like, you can't just you can't just rock up to that kind of group. So tell me about your initial introduction to them and and what that was that was like. Because, I mean, there's some funny stories around there that I'd love for you to get into because, one, I think they're incredible. And, and, um, and two, you're so understated. I know I got to dig at you in order for you to tell them. I just, it's, yes, it's, it's so much happened back then. It's, um, uh, and I never really kind of, doc I don't really document it in my head. I mean, but, um, the, yeah, when I guess the reason was uh, that, again, I, I, I was training with one uh, French guy over here. It was called Forrest. And we, we were, and he's this big, black dude he's like you know massively strong he's an incredible athlete at that mm -hmm. stage he was like you know i never met anyone half as strong as him at that stage and i thought i was strong and fit and fast because i'd done martial arts my whole life and it's practical stuff well, i mean forest is an enormous guy for starters yeah, no, i mean, right. so, I mean yeah, to, yeah. to move like forest because forest has got just so people have it a uh, an idea in his head like forest is what about six four six i think six three six yeah. three six four yeah. but probably weighs but he's 220, like 20, 240 yeah. pounds. Like he's an enormous guy to move yeah. like that. So anyway, so you're training with force. Yeah. yeah, of course. You know, I mean, he, yeah, he's, so I was exactly. And I, and I, I, I thought I, I was pretty capable at that time in my paradigm and the people I trained with and fought against. I was like, okay, I'm pretty strong. I've got good balance. I'm pretty fast, pretty athletic, pretty fit. But then I met Forrest and then later on the, you know, the French, the other French practitioners and was like, okay, that's a different level of physicality. I was like, there's my, their warmups were, you know, I, I, I could, I, I suffered, I can, I had to struggle through what they do to warm up and their, the, the training back then was so arduous that, um, it was, it was commonly said back in the day when we were training that, that, um, you have to, before you can begin training in parkour, you have to, you know, you have to train in order to be able to train sort of thing. Right. Um, just because the, the, the basic 
movements that require so much strength and, and um, power and, and control that, you know, like being introduced to the muscle up on a bar, you know, I remember trying a muscle up the first time and thinking, how is that? I, don't, I can't, there's no way I could do that. How is that possible to pull yourself from a straight hang up into a bar thinking, you know, you try it and you think, I can't do that. Um, and then, and then you see some guy do it like 15 now, times in a row. I'm going to, I'm going to stop you around muscle ups because a long time ago, I was, uh, you and I had a conversation. This is one of the, this is one of the funniest conversations I think I've ever had with anyone, but, um, but particularly you and, and we were talking about different things. I was saying, Oh, you know, like I, I like to do these, these challenges. And I was talking about, uh, this jump rope challenge I'd done or something like that. I remember you saying, mm. Oh mate, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I like that kind of thing too. Um, and then as I recall, you went on to say, uh, I asked you, well, cool, like, give me an example of one. He said, well, just a few months ago, I decided to see um, if I could do a thousand muscle-ups in a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was not a good idea. <laughs> it, turned out, it turned out to not be a good idea, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, we, it, it was good in that, in in you know, we, we achieved it, but it was, it was not a good idea in that it was incredibly difficult and painful and when we suffered for weeks and months afterwards as a result of it. So we'd never <laughs> recommend it. But, um, <laughs> but we, we did prove that it was possible, which was our, our idea at the time was like how, you know, cause we'd done, I think that before that, the challenge before that we had was 300 muscle ups on a bar in two, in under two hours. That was the 300 challenge. And if you complete that, you got a special t-shirt. That was it. That's all you got was a t-shirt. Right. But, um, uh, but you know, we, we love that sort of challenge. So we did that. And then after that, yeah, so it was actually, it wasn't, it wasn't my idea originally. It was a friend of mine who said, um, we were having dinner in Brazil and he said, uh, on a trip and he was, he said, um, would you, as a thought experiment, he said, would you rather do a thousand muscle ups or I think it was 5,000 pushups in a day. It was either five or 10, but I think it was five. Would you rather do a thousand muscle ups in one day or 5,000 pushups in one day? And I remember we talked about it. We went through it back and back. We'd always do these thought experiments and, um, and we kind of argued the pros and cons. And then he said, I'd rather do a thousand muscle ups. And then he said, I'm going to, I think I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it. And I was like, okay, let's do it. I'll do it with you. So, so we were both like, let's do, okay, let's do a thousand muscle ups. So that was how it came about um, to see if it was possible. And, and then a f- six other moronic friends of ours decided to join in as well, do it, do it. Um, and uh, so eight of us did it and it was, yeah, it was horrendous, but, um, but it it's that- possible, but not advisable. Not advisable at all. No, I mean, it's not going to make you better at muscle. Those sort of challenges of which we've done, you know, lot hundreds throughout the years, um, similar things, I guess. Uh, those sort of challenges are not sensible training that, you know, you don't do that in order yeah. to become stronger or faster or improve your technique. There's no, they're, they're, it's not, it's not done as a training methodology that they're, 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 they're what we call peak experiences. So you do them to test your limits, to see if you can do it. Um, and to test your psychology to see if your mind, because most of the time we've realized through parkour and through these ridiculous challenges, which again, I didn't know before I did parkour, but you come to realize that you can actually do way more than you think you can do. Um, Like way more, not just a bit more, way more. So, and when you realize, when you go through that enough times, you realize that it's all in your mind. It's all psychological. Like the Navy SEALs say that, you know, when someone quits, they're typically at 40% of their capacity. And that's when, when they quit physically, they, they're only at 40% of what they could do. They've got another 60% of the tank physically, but their mind gives up. Uh, and I think that's 100% right. So when you learn, when you experience that, you then kind of want more of it. You then sort of think, what other stupid challenges are there that I could do that could test how much I can do, how, mm-hmm. how far I can push. And 
so we don't recommend them as, as regular things. We do them as peak experiences and events. We expose people to these in, 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 in like either our coaching certifications or our training events that are sort of big gatherings um, or, or smaller versions within classes. Um, and they're incredibly useful. I, you know, I really recommend them because people go, they, they finish, they hate you while they're doing it. <laughs> um, and they look at you like you're mad when you explain what you're going to do and what everyone's mm -hmm. going to do. They sort of like, there's no way. But when they do it and they complete it, either as a group or as individual or whatever, they then, you see the change in them. You know, you see them realize like, wow, I, I did something that I, that just two hours ago I thought was impossible, but I've done it. And you see them realize like, what else am I holding myself back on? And, and that for me is incredibly powerful. And that's more useful than learning any jump technique or somersault or anything like that. That's more useful for them because that their, their mentality is now forever changed and their view of their own potential has gone up, you know? So I think that's more important than anything else really in training. Yeah. And I, I, I want to get down into some of some more of that. Um, and, I, and I know you're the same because you know, you, you, you train hard and you've been training hard and even when you're injured with, you know, having your surgery and all that sort of stuff, you still train. So I know you've got the same kind of mentality. So it's true. Um, it, it is true. I mean, I think that that's the, you know, what, what is next? is um, like natural progression. It sounds like some of the stuff you're talking about, like what is natural progression? What is the most that I can do or the, the highest level that I can perform at is, um, but that's, a, that's an interesting, just lifelong pursuit, regardless of where I'm at. Mm. Um, you know, what, what can I do in this moment and what can I work towards? Which, yeah. you know, so as you're getting introduced to guys like Forrest and, and the other people, it's like, wow, this is a, this is a level up in terms of here's what sure. I thought was possible. Here's, here's what I'm looking around and being demonstrated to what's possible. And that, that's cool. It's, it's, I mean, that changes, that changes your thought process on what it is that, that you can do, I think. So I want to roll forward a little bit. So you're passionately pursuing parkour. Now you've been introduced to the founders, you're cranking away, you're, you're, um, you're, you're doing that kind of thing. Um, when and how does the idea for parkour generations hatch? Because at first, this is a passion for you, you know, an mm. individual passion and challenge and something you're pursuing alongside of. And I imagine it, I imagine it, it, um, it coexisted very well with, with your passion for martial arts because, you know, they're, mm. they're, they're, they're similar. Now you can jump across the gap and draw your sword so you're ready to go. Um, but, um, that is pretty much how I feel. Yeah. Again, it's that, it's that basic. It's really sad, but it's that, <laughs> that's basically exactly right. So how do you transition from like, hey, I'm really passionate about this. I have martial arts as one passion and, and, and then this emerging thing of parkour, which I'm pursuing a lot. Where mm. does the idea for parkour generations even come from? Really interesting um, period as well that was. And, and it was very organic. So I was training in Japan, as, as I say, until about 2004 in this, in this very specific, very old, um, the oldest Japanese um, fighting art there is. So I was training there specifically for that for five years, I guess. And then I came back to the UK. Um, and by this stage, I'd, I'd added parkour to my training in a serious way. So I was training in parkour every day and the fighting arts every day. So I came back here and moved back to London, you know, did if didn't really know what I wanted to do sort of career wise. So I was doing a few sort of, um, uh, like worked, I worked for a business consultancy and, and, and then for, a, for, a, uh, a, a, a consulting magazine as well as an editor for a while, um, but for a few months, but basically I didn't really care about the stuff. I was just interested in training and I was training with, um, 
uh, with Forrest every day. He was living in London at the time. And then through Forrest, I met a, um, a guy called Stéphane Vigrou, um, another one of the French original mm-hmm. practitioners. And it was when I met Steph that, um, in 2004, I think, that um, when I saw him moving, he was the one that had, he was the one that had basically introduced Forrest to it years ago. So when I saw Stéphane moving, uh, he wasn't as strong or anything like that as Forrest. He was very different, very slim sort of... Um, um, guy but you know much lighter much much more sort of agile but when i saw him moving that was the first time that when i thought okay that you know i just seen a human do something that i would not have believed you could do unless i seen it with my own eyes like i was you know you'd look at the distances and the gaps and what the movement was and in the rain i remember on the first day i saw him training it was raining and it's like no one would do that when it's dry man and this guy's doing it he's repeating this jump in the rain can you describe you know? the jump uh, this jump was, uh, it was in France in, in district 13, uh, the sort of, um, the famous birthplace of parkour. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's a cat pass, which is where you run along and, 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 or through vault in gymnastics sort of thing. You run, you put your hands on the wall, you vault through your hands. Um, and then it was over, a, over, a, over a set of stairs. So it was sideways over a set of concrete stairs and down to another concrete block. And there's a drop of like 10, 15 feet. It's not the drop that's going to do you the damage. It's that if you don't make that um, if you if you don't have enough power in that in that, you don't, vault. if you land on the stairs, yeah, if you land on the stairs, or if you, or if you don't quite make the block, then then you're going to crash into the concrete block. If you don't get right. your feet to it, then your knees or something are going to crash into it. So right. if you don't get it right, you, there's a good chance you're you're going away with a crippling injury. There's a good chance you're breaking bones and things like that. Right. So. Um, and it was raining. So most people in the rain, they would be like, I'm not doing it. Anyway, it was raining. And it was a puddle where, where the takeoff was. And I remember thinking, wait, is he going to do that jump? Um, and, and he did it. He did the movement, boom, and then went back and repeated it. And I was like, okay, first of all, I wouldn't have thought a human could vault a wall and go that far and land on another object. <laughs> you know. Anyway, I don't think you could do that anyway. And then in the rain, and then to repeat it as part of your training protocol, it was just training. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I can't even do that. I can't even do the vault yet kind of thing. I mean, I could do the vault, but I was like, I, can't, I couldn't do that vault that far yet. So I've got to train physically to get that first. And then I've got to get the psychology of doing it in the rain and the technique to do it when the floor is slippery and the wall is slippery. And I was like, wow, this is a long old process. This, this is a discipline for life. You know, I was like, okay, this is a... But I understood discipline training because I'd done martial arts so long. So I, I realized, I understood the idea that, it, you know, it's okay to spend five or 10 or 15 years training something to be able to get, to be able to master it. That's... I was, I was under, I, I knew that was normal. That was normal for me because mm-hmm. of the martial arts. Sure. So, martial arts. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I can see that I'm not going to be able to do that job today. Probably not in a month, probably not in a year, but maybe in two years I'll be able to do it right. sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, and now I, now I eventually get to the stage where you can, and as you start unlocking that. So I met Steph and it was when I met him that I thought, okay, the movement side of this is phenomenal. And, and I, and I want to be able to do that. Um, and we were, and then, you know, we, we, me and Forrest were living in the UK. We were training all day, every day. And we started to get attention. Like, uh, the, the media would come and talk to us. Um, you know, we'd do newspaper interviews. We'd do, you know, whatever. There was no podcast back then, but you know, radio interviews. We'd do some performances for stunt work for, for TV stuff, for commercials. And then because I was... Now, was the, was the, was the media coming to talk to you in between when security was coming to talk to you? <laughs> yeah, they were, well, I mean, it started to get out, basically. So word started to get out in London that this sort of thing was happening. And there was a documentary that came out in 2003 called Jump London, which is where some of the French guys, including Steph, mm-hmm. came and trained on London's most famous sort of buildings. And that was a huge documentary that went worldwide. Um, and so London knew that parkour had kind of arrived. Um, and me and Forrest were, were probably the most 
experience at the time practicing in, in London um, and with a few other guys. Um, and we started teaching. So we, we became accessible because we started, we, we thought we want to, you know, is there a way that we can pass this on to other people? Because we, we had learned in a very rough, organic way, sort of the original way of training in parkour, which is that basically you find guys who could do it and you try and keep up with them. And maybe they'll share some stuff with you on the way while they're training. But if you can't keep up, go home kind of thing. You know, it was, there was right. no, um, there was no scaling, no, you know, no coaching at all. Um, and me and Forrest both had backgrounds in teaching me, martial arts and academically and Forrester mm. in, in the military PT. So we both kind of thought, you know, could we make this more accessible to people? Is there a way we can teach this whereby people can get the benefits of this awesome thing that we're experiencing, but they don't necessarily have to be as crazy and relentless as us to find people to learn from. So could we, could we do it in a class format? So we created parkour classes, the first classes in the world. Um, and that started to get a lot of attention. Um, and people start to come and learn from us. The classes were rammed from day one. Um, right. Yeah, like the first class had like 30 people and the second class of the next week had like 70 people. Um, was that because it was the, the news had, like you got some notoriety, the, the, the news had come to look at it. It was such a, it was such a, a visually compelling thing mm. to, to, to watch that, that, you know, as word got out, it was like, my goodness, there's a certain subset of the population that says, I, I want to learn how to do that. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a case of people, some people had seen it, enough people had seen it and had seen the documentary and seen, you know, the movie and, and were thinking, you know, that's, that's super, that's super cool. I want to be able to do that. Um, and there was enough in London, there was enough of that population like that mm -hmm. who, who, who thought I'll give it a try. And they came down and they started training and, they, and, um, you know, the classes were, now I look back, you know, the classes were brutally hard. <laughs> um, they were, they were really not in any way nice, kind experiences. I mean, we were nice, you know, for yeah. us, not so nice, maybe not, not I mean, he's a bit more sort of hardcore, but um, the, all we did was thought we're going to, we're going to basically use our training, the training we were doing, mm -hmm. we were going to, we were going to just do a two hour version of that as a class, do a warm up do loads of training and then do a cool down at the end, you know, so it was, it was pretty well structured in that way, but it was super hard, I suppose. And people were like not getting through the warm up. They were, you know, vomiting halfway through the warm up and then having to sit down. And, and we were just like, <laughs> I guess it's, you know, it's not good coaching. I'm not saying this is good coaching at all, but you know, I didn't really, we didn't really know too much what we're doing then that stage. So it was more a case of, look, this is how we train. So good luck you know, this is good. This is, this is going to be good for you. You're going to, eventually you're going to get to the stage where you can do this stuff. Um, and some of them, a lot of them seem to like that because no matter how hard we make it, the numbers would increase each week because they would go away and tell their friends like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. You must come and try it out. So they come back with a friend the next week. So, you know, classes, the class on the group, we were like, you guys are crazy, man. We're, but this is really tough. Why, why are you here? <laughs> um, so, um, but they, they loved it and it grew from there, I guess. And, um, and that was when, to come back to your original question, that was when, as we were teaching and the demand for it was growing, you know, that was when we thought there's something here. And, and we realized that, um, you know, we had to add another class and another class because of the demand. And then one day we just realized look, this is, this is what we're doing professionally. Now we're not, mm -hmm. I, we didn't have time to do any other work or anything else. All we had time to do in the day was train and then teach. And, and we realized that this is now our profession. One day we literally woke up and we're like, this is what we do professionally. We we do. Are, we're, we're professional parkour athletes. We do performance work here and there, 
but we basically teach every day. And, and that was when we thought, okay, maybe we can, let's create a vehicle for this. We asked Stefan to come to the UK and live in the UK. Um, and me and those two were the founders of Parkour Generations. So we, um, we then set it up as a company um, with the help of a, a good friend of mine who's a very experienced um, accountant. And um, we didn't know anything about companies or businesses at the time. <laughs> so we, we had his help to set it up. And then we, we were like, okay, let's, off we go. You know, we just went and, um, and, and that was how it was born. We didn't know what we were doing at all. It was well, and, and so that leads kind of into the next thing I want to talk about. But before we do, I just want to pause and highlight that anything that you say is probably understated by a factor of ten. Um, and just 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 for the record, um, you know, as you say, you know, hey, you come and come and take take the class for a couple hours. You can survive. That's all good. Um, if not, then that's, mm. that's all good too, <laughs> yeah. which is consistent, consistent yeah. to kind of the origins of, of parkour as I understand them. But, um, so it sounds to me like your growth was very, 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 very organic, right? So you're, you're growing this thing. You said, Oh, let's, let's teach some classes. It starts to go. People seem to like it. It was exciting. Now, what year is this in? that all this stuff is going on. That was, so we started the first classes in two, at the end of 2004, I think. And then 2005 was when they sort of began to cement. And then we sort of created the company. I think we began the company in 2006. So, okay, so we'll come back around to it because 2006 aligns with the release of Casino Royale, yeah. which was one of the first mainstream, I think for me, it was the first mainstream movie that I ever saw that featured and highlighted both in the mm. opening scene and then throughout um, some some very significant parkour shots. I know there was lots of other movies and 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 more more um, cultish films yes. before that, but that was one of the first mainstream ones. Is that like how much does that have to do with you guys being based in like your your organization being based in London? That franchise you know, being centered around there. Like how did, how did um, the film industry start to get interested in the integration of parkour? Cause that was the first major mm-hmm. one that I saw. And I know that that excited, I'm sure the acceleration of parkour and the interest mm-hmm. in it after that must've been significant. Cause you were at, at that stage in, in London, I'm sure the only, the only game in town. Yeah. I mean, you know, Luc Besson, I suppose in some ways got, got, got a fair amount to answer for because he did the original film Yamakasi in 2000, which Mm -hmm. was, um, which, which featured seven of the nine sort of founding individuals. And then he also did um, district 13, Bonlieu Trez, which featured one of the other founders, David Bell. And that came Mm -hmm. out in maybe 2005, maybe um, six. Um, So something like that rounds just before Casino Royale. Um, And that was, that was, you know, really a very much a parkour specific film because, because David was the star of that movie. So it was very much a parkour film. Um, So those two films had sort of put it on the big screen in a big way. And then Casino Royale was the biggest mainstream film that explored it as well with Mm -hmm. another one of the founders involved. So, um, so those are the ones that introduced to the big screen, but the first Nike TV commercial that had featured parkour was in 98. So, so yeah, so the media had already been and brands had already been using parkour for performance reasons since 1998. And we've done tons of, by that stage, by the time just, um, bond came out, we'd done tons of 
TV ads, um, stunts for movies, uh, live shows, product launches all around the world. We, we, that was what we did more of than teaching at the start because that was what the, you know, that was what people wanted. So, um, we'd done stuff for K Swiss, for Nike, for Adidas, for MTV, for, you know, Samsung, pretty much all the major brands. Um, so we were very used to performing. Um, and, and performance was an element of parkour that you could sort of get into. And some people went down the road of just performing. They weren't mm-hmm. interested in teaching. They just wanted to, to, to be a parkour performance athlete, um, which is super cool. So, so it, and, and obviously the media loved it, you know, it really caught the attention of, um, of, of the public in that way. Cause it's visually so spectacular mm-hmm. and you can do stuff with parkour that you can't do with stunts because stunt, stunt the stunt world is very, very um, regimented and, and obviously they have to abide by very strict rules and regulations for safety reasons, understandably. Um, whereas in parkour, the parkour practitioners are used to doing the movements without any safety stuff and without ropes. So we're able to perform movements on camera that stunt guys wouldn't be able to do, or wouldn't be allowed to do, even if they could do it. Because so, of the organization. Yeah, pretty much. So, and we, but we're not bound by that. So we could come in and do these. I mean, I remember doing a movie, um, uh, many years ago with a lo- it was a movie that we did as a company, PKJN and loads of our guys were involved in it. And, and there was a stunt team on it and our guys involved in it. it was a zombie film. And, and there was a scene where the zombies all had to descend down this sort of huge sort of, um, like, uh, almost like a missile launch chamber. And they had to descend down the size of that from walkway to walkway as zombies super quickly. Mm-hmm. And first of all, the director asked the stunt team to do it. And so they did it roped because they have to. So they came down sort of roped and therefore were moving and they weren't as used to these sort of movements. So they were moving a bit slowly and he, and the parkour guys were mixed in amongst them. So the parkour right. guys, our, our guys got to the bottom at like twice the speed of the stunt guys. Um, and the director was like, okay. So for the next shot, he was like, okay, only the parkour guys, stunt guys go away. <laughs> I just want the parkour guys to do that because they look like real zombies that move at that speed and aren't caring about their sort of animalistic movement. They're not caring about their bodies and they still pull it off and they, and we didn't have to do it wide or roped. So the stunt guys were not happy about that because they've been so imagine they were. <laughs> but it went to show that the, you know, the movie industry was like, okay, these parkour guys can do stuff that, that no one else can do. So they started to, you know, and, and then after that, pretty much, I mean, after Casino Royale, almost every, there was a spate where every action movie in Hollywood had to have a parkour scene, no matter sure. what the movie, you know. Now, now, are you talking specifically about World War Z? We did do World War Z, but that actually wasn't World War Z. That so, was that was so, so I have a question. First of all, what's the most challenging and interesting thing you've ever had to do on set? We can talk about this movie stuff for a minute and then kind of come back to Parkour Generations mm. and, and all of that. I have a question specifically about World War Z because you have a funny story around it, but I'm wondering beyond that, like what's the most mm. kind of interesting, kind of challenging thing that, that, uh, that you've ever done on set? The most challenging thing that I ever did for a shoot was actually for a TV commercial in Japan, but um, for uh, K-Swiss and MTV, I think in collaboration. And it was, um, it was odd because it was... We were on the route. We did a shoot over there. It was 2006 or seven, maybe. Anyway, we did um, was uh, did did a load of stuff. Basically, completed the shooting, and a lot of the shooting was on rooftops. And um, but we finished the day shoot, and then uh, I could see from we had the permission to use these sort of two buildings, um, and but from the edge of one of these buildings, I could see another building that you could jump to. That I could jump. I realized I could make the jump, but it wasn't part of the. We didn't have permission to shoot on that building and we didn't have permission to go in there, but I could see that 
you could jump across and uh, there was actually a way you could actually sort of get back to this building as well so the shooting had ended and i was like I just, for, for the jump sort of calls to you, you know, this is in parkour, you have this call of the jump. So mm-hmm. I kind of thought I must do this jump before we go down, before we finish the day shooting. Cause we're not, we're not going to be in the rooftop again. This, right. uh, you know, so, um, I was like, I've got to do this jump before we go down. Can you describe, um, can you describe the gap and the drop? I actually, I actually have a photo of it. So, um, and, and, um, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was, I think the building we were on was, was something like 30 stories. So mm-hmm. it was, it was, it was pretty high up and the, and the building, the other building was like one story less in height. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, um, so there was, a, there was a, you know, a bit of a drop and it was probably about a 15 foot distance between the two, but because like of the across the street. Yeah. But because of the drop in height, yeah, that meant you got if you jump time. from here, you've got more airtime. So, um, and it was standing on the ledge. You could, ju- I could just about, I could see the jump. I could see that I could do it. And that's the thing mm. in parkour. You kind of, if you feel the call of the jump, it, you mm. know in some way that you can probably do it. Otherwise it wouldn't call to you. you. Yeah. You wouldn't even see it. Right. So, so I looked at him and thought I could do that. I want to do it. And because the, the camera crew, the director saw that I was looking at it, he was like, is he going to do that jump? Um, so, so he basically said, get the camera, get the camera. Um, and, and they said, you know, are you going to do it? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it, but it's not part of the shoot anyway, but they did film it. Um, so, um, so I did the jump. I think I did it like two or three times because in Parker, we have a saying once is never, you know, if you do it once, it mm-hmm. could just be fluke. Um, and twice could be coincidence. So you've got to do it like at least three times to make sure you can do the jump. So, so right. I did it sort of three times. And, and I remember thinking at the time, I remember thinking technically it's not overly difficult, but if I, you know, if I don't make this, then you're dead. Right. Yeah. So, um, and I remember thinking, you know, again, it was kind of one of those moments like you're jumping from 30 stories across a gap to 29 stories. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I remember thinking like, again, it's one of those moments, like when I started, it was like, there's no need to do this. We finished the shoot. There's no reason to do it. But, and it wasn't, it's not an adrenaline thing. A lot of people say, oh, you guys are adrenaline junkies. You know, it's not, a, it's nothing to be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, doing, you know, the, the, the activities and the disciplines, the mountain biking that you do, you don't, you don't do it for adrenaline coursing through your body because if you have adrenaline coursing through your body, you'll find motor skills go to shit and you mess up. So mm-hmm. it's not about that. It's a very meditative thing and, and it's very much a, a kind of, you're in the zone. It's kind of a Zen practice, right? So it's not about that. It was more a question of the jump had called to me and I realized I had no other opportunities to do it. And if I wanted to see if I could do that jump, then right. now was the time. So it was, uh, but there was a lot around it. Like if you don't make it one, you're probably dead Two, the shoots ruined, you know, um, <laughs> three, you know, there's lo- loads of things around there. Right? So, right. um, but, uh, you know, so, I, but I wanted to do it. That was probably the, the, the kind of maybe the most, um, psychologically maybe the most challenging i suppose maybe um thing i've done the shoot but we've done there's lots of other stuff that's technically harder and weird and the thing on sure. shoot, the thing when you're doing shoots in parkour is that the things you do in your own training are almost always way harder than anything you do on a shoot mm-hmm. um you, you know anything you do on a shoot you're probably only operating at you know maybe 60 70 80 percent maybe of your capacity the reason being that you've got to repeat that thing hundreds of times for the camera you may have to repeat that jump hundreds of times for a camera you know you may have to do 30 takes of a very big jump right whereas in real life you may only want to do five of that jump just you know something like that so um you know that you've got to do that so you so you tend to not go at your max because you've got to repeat it and shooting days are long and arduous and so um so things you do on shoots are generally not the max that you can do um the test for when you're shooting is that you know you're going to be repeating it over and over and over. And the joke in parkour is that you get used to the phrase, that was great. Can you do it again? (laughs) 
you know, that was great. Just one more. That yeah. was perfect. One more. <laughs> like, if it's perfect, okay. Um, okay, so, fine. I'll do one yeah. more. But you've got to do it again. So you, that's, the, that's the element in, in shooting is the psychological element of, of the, the durability and the resilience. Um, and that's why resilience training in parkour is also so important because mm. you know you've got to be able to take that jump multiple times. Um, yeah. So resilience training freely translated meaning ability to suffer. Pretty much, yeah. The ability, the ability to endure and the ability to know, you know, it's not only, so in, in parkour, it's not only about, you know, being able to do big power, massive movements that, you know, mm-hmm. you do develop good power, but the idea is, can you do, can you express that power many, many times? Um, and if not, it's not, it's maybe not so useful. If you can do like, you know, a few, two or three jumps at your max distance and then that's it. It's not that useful. It's not that functional. It's not that practical. So the question is, can you do that jump 20 times, 30 times, 50 times, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that you can do it when you need to, even if you're tired or injured or sick or whatever. Um, so it's a very practical discipline. When I was introduced to parkour anyway, it was purely practical discipline. And that's what I loved about it. Same as the mm-hmm. fighting arts, the practical element of this is a usable functional thing. Um, and that's what I loved. And that's what I taught. And that's still the, the ethos of what we teach uh, at parkour generations. Definitely. So you talk about, um, you know, the, the importance of being able to repeat something and, it, you know, does once it doesn't never happen twice. Have you ever done something like, yep, in my mind, like I see that it's calling to me and you do it and you're like, yeah, in retrospect, <laughs> that probably shouldn't have ever happened. And I think I'm good. Yes. Yes. I mean, at times when, so when you're pushing your limit in parkour and, you know, and it's, Again, it's not necessarily that you, that you necessarily have to do this um, or mm. that this is a good idea, but at times, because you're pushing the limit and any high-level athlete performing in any discipline will know that, that you walk a fine line between what's just within your capabilities and what's just beyond your capabilities. And you have, mm. it's called, I think um, Stephen Link sh- called that edge work, I think. It's a sharp edge. Yeah, and, and you know, any athlete experiences that at a high level because you know that if you're going to find your true ability, you've got to walk that line and it is a sharp edge. And if you're on the wrong side of that line, every now and again, things can maybe not go so well. So there have been times in when, yeah, I've completed a jump, gone for a movement, you know, maybe not even a jump sometimes, but gone for a movement, a technical challenge of some sort, did it, but it was a bit sloppy, you know, and you, you survive it, you come out the other end of it and you're okay, but you think, Hmm, that was very close. Um, and then you go away and think, okay, maybe I need to train more before I come back and do that because that right. was maybe, maybe that was just, just at the tip of my ability and I couldn't complete that more than once safely. So, um, so yeah, then you'd leave that, you'd go away and train and you'd come back in a, a month or so when you're better at that thing and then you'd repeat it. So I want to loop back around to parkour generations and the business side of that. Um, but before we do, you have a hilarious story that you told me one time of working on World War mm. Z and um, the director's specific instructions that made some of the stuff that you were doing as zombies very challenging. I'd love for you to share that with because I remember that as being just, just an amazing story. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was an interesting it, one. And there are a lot of stories like that, I guess. Mm. But, um, and there are things you only encounter in that sort of environment. But um, uh, there was a, lo- a load of our team were on this shoot. And, and the idea was that um, it was a zombie shoot. Uh, obviously and and the zombies move super fast and you had to there were some scenes where loads of the zombies had to move very quickly over a sort of street urban terrain you know climbing over over cars and jumping barriers and whatever to get to their prey um and so obviously you know our guys were very experienced at 
moving like that in a straight line over over obstacles and they could do it really well and that's why they'd be brought in for the for the for the zombie modes because they could move in this animalistic way and do sort of semi-subium stuff so we did that did the first take and the director was like yeah it's not quite right and kind of watched it back and then he was like right the reason it's not right is that you guys are looking at where your feet and your hands are going as you move and a zombie because zombies don't care about their own safety they only care about their prey they would be fixated on their prey so their eyes would only be looking at their target they wouldn't be looking at where their hands and feet are going but obviously as a parkour practitioner you're like well hang on <laughs> uh, if you we need to see where our feet and hands are going because you know we're landing on thin obstacles and jumping and if you miss one of those jumps or miss one of those landings or, or the takeoff isn't quite right it could go bad and you're moving your peripheral fast. visions your peripheral vision is not known for its depth particularly yeah. well especially <laughs> over a long terrain so you're like oh shit. so you then have to repeat that you but you've got to do uh, you see the point you know you can, mm. if a zombie's like of jumping course, and, yeah. and they look down you know people can be like well a zombie would do that so um so you then have to so we have to do the scene the, uh, um uh you know looking ahead looking at the target but doing the same movements at the same speed so without um, looking at the obstacles essentially yeah yeah, so basically going on sort of instinct and peripheral vision and, and it works and it works because you get into this kind of flow state, I suppose, but it is, um, but it's unusual and it's something you wouldn't do in normal parkour training necessarily. So um, it's one of those things where you, where it's in a way it's interesting because you get tested. I used to enjoy the shoots where you were asked to do things you wouldn't do in normal training because it was like, this is a really interesting test. We would never mm. come up with this test by ourselves, but now we're being challenged in a way that we wouldn't be in our own training. Um, and that is interesting. Like, can we do it? Can I find a way to do that? And we, we you know, we, at this stage, we obviously were very professional in that industry by that stage. So mm. if we thought it was unsafe for, for our athletes to do that or ourselves to do that, we would say, you know, no, we're not going to do that and we'd find another way to do it. But we'd always look at it and think any, anything we were asked to do by a director or, or a cinematographer or whatever, we would say, we would look at it and think, can, can we do that? Can we pull it off? Um, and if we could, you know, we'd go, okay, let's do it. It's really interesting. Um, but we still, we had very um, clear, we'd built very clear safeguards on things by then to, to sort of check the fatigue levels of the athletes and, um, uh, and, and how comfortable they were with it. Um, and, and we had, we always, we have a, a rule basically where when we're on set that the parkour coordinator on set um, is the one who has final say over whether an athlete is going to do that jump or do that movement and how many times they're going to do it. Um, and it wouldn't, and we eventually narrowed it down to, we, we, we allow, we, we put it in the hands of the parkour coordinator, not the parkour mm. athletes. So we right. normally send a coordinator on a set and there'll be two or three athletes. And one of the very experienced guys will act as a coordinator. Um, and the coordinator would be the one to say, yes, you can do it or no, you can't do it because the athletes often, they often, because of their, you know, the, the, the feeling they have of wanting to achieve these things, they would be like, no, I want to do it. I think I can right. do it. But the coordinator might be like, mm, no, yeah, you, you've done three not. hours of this today already. I'm not going to let you do it. Yeah. So for their safety reasons. And, and that, that made things, um, that, that was a very efficient way to do things. Yeah. That sounds like a good safeguard. So let's, let's roll back a little bit. Um, so one of the most difficult things for any entrepreneur is to, to rise from the depths of obscurity. Mm. And, and so, so you've got this idea, uh, you guys are, are taking your class or, or executing your classes. It's getting popular because of, you know, people talking and just kind of word of mouth at the same time, 
while all this stuff is visually compelling, parkour, especially at that time, was viewed as something that was dangerous and, and actually criminal in some ways. So how do you how do you actually socialize this thing and start to develop business structure around teaching these people to potentially or, or essentially be cat burglars? And we're going to get to that in a little bit. But um, yeah, so tell me a little bit about um, just that process of, of changing. Yeah. Cause you've got this fringe group of people that are participating and they think it's great, but then you've got society as a whole that's watching you thinking this is dangerous. This is crazy. And this isn't legal. And so tell me about that process early on in the days of parkour generations and how you rose both from obscurity, which is the hardest thing of any business. And secondly, how do you manage some of those other elements that, you know, are not, are not standard. Those are some serious challenges. Yeah, it was, I mean, there were pros and cons to it, right? Because it was the, you know, the, 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 the we were on the crest of a wave in a way in the YouTube came along in 2005, I think. Um, and YouTube, you know, loved parkour, loved it. The parkour videos were incredibly popular. They were the most popular. I mean, the stats back in those days were that, you know, parkour was more popular. Parkour videos were more viewed every month than all the other lifestyle sports. By that I mean like BMX, skateboarding, skydiving, climbing combined. So you could combine all those sports, all those disciplines, mm -hmm. and they would have fewer views than the parkour videos. Wow. So um, it was massive on YouTube. And that's why we did two YouTube takeover days where YouTube themselves let us decide and curate what went on the front page of YouTube for a whole day. Um, and we just put oh, loads wow. of parkour videos on. And they were the most successful YouTube takeover days in history back then. They don't do them anymore. But um, So, you know, they loved parkour. And that, that meant parkour was growing very fast. There was a huge attention on it. And, and so in a way, it was just that was just luck in a way because we were like, well, we're the only ones that were kind of organizing it professionally and providing a sort of a, a, a uh, an organized front for the, for the, for this very wild organic discipline that was not formalized was there were no train. There were no schools. There were no classes. You know, most of the guys practicing, especially the original first, second generation were very wild individuals, you know, um, very in a way, crazy kind of individuals. Um, who lived on the fringes and, and they would never be able to interact with things like schools and local councils and sports authorities, right. you know, there was, you couldn't really put those two together. So we were able, I suppose, because of my background in academic, uh, in the academic world as a, as a university lecturer and, and in business and in some ways I you know had some sort of more experience in that world um, and 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 Forrest was also a very professional individual from his background. We were able to create the link I think between that wild community and mainstream world sort of thing. So we would right. create, we were the, we were the mouthpiece um, and we, we would be able to bring those wild practitioners in and, and expose them to these mainstream worlds like schools and, and, and fitness world and the sports world and the movie world, you know? So mm -hmm. most of the early, team members in parkour generations were the were were the, the the french a lot of the original french practitioners the second third generation practitioners mm -hmm. especially um so wild individuals really wild individuals you know great individuals but really wild um and 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 so we were able to create that kind of link um and that uh, uh allowed us to to sort of um, deal with certainly the UK authorities and the city of Westminster was particularly um, important. One of the boroughs in London, the biggest borough in London that, that where the government is based, um, 
they really embraced what we were doing. They came to us, and for example, they came to us early on in 2005, I think, and asked us to teach um, for some social inclusion programs for disadvantaged mm. kids um, and in schools. And we thought we could probably do that. So, so we taught those classes um, and those workshops, and it had huge benefit for these kids. Um, and crime rates dropped in those age groups, and you know the kids wow. loved it. And and uh, there was a lot of um, suddenly the world kind of the, the, the sports authorities and the local councils and the education world kind of sat up and listened. Suddenly they were like, wow, this, this practice is giving these kids discipline. It's making them stronger and fitter. It's making them more healthy. It's making them, um, it's making them act better. Their behavior is improving, you know, and, and, and all they're doing is climbing walls and jumping around. What's that about? Um, so they suddenly sat up and took notice. Um, and that was one of the, that was one of the really important doors to open because um, after that we could say, well, we work with the city of Westminster and we work with these schools and we work mm-hmm. with the metropolitan police. Um, and, and suddenly it had a lot of credibility because of that. Um, so, but a lot of that was down to the way that we taught. It was down to the fact that it was when people saw us teaching it um, and training, even just the training, they could see that it wasn't just anarchic kids jumping around causing damage you know they that wasn't what parkour was or is they can mm-hmm. see that these people are training they're training they're, they're putting their bodies through a discipline they're repeating these movements with a, a lot of precision a lot of care a lot of attention to detail um and it looks like hard work it looks like a lot of fun but they could you could see that it was a practice you know and you can see that they're they're not gonna because there's it's not so much a disconnect in that you know the skills are the same but that which made parkour incredibly popular in youtube and wanted and and made movies you know you have such a high demand to work on films and in commercials etc was because it it just looks so crazy it was so different right i mean the stuff we talked about um you know leaping across you know uh, from building to building that sort of thing where the where the actual risk risk is ultimate you know where if it doesn't go right you, you pay the ultimate price and understanding how do you bridge the gap between here's what's being socialized on YouTube mm. and, and in movies, and here's what the actual practice mm. looks like. And so there's a safety. There, mm. You can actually, how do you get those two things, which start off here, mm. get to there? Because that must have been one of the greatest challenges in terms of your business. Absolutely. And it's still going on. It's not that mm-hmm. we've kind of, it's not that fight's ended, right? But um, it's an education piece is what it is. Mm-hmm. And we, w- what we did, we very consciously, um, when we began Parkour Generations, we very consciously, we had a filmmaker who is, she was an anthropologist at the time, PhD student, I think, um, at the time, I think she just started PhD maybe. Um, and she was an um, anthropology student who made sort of documentary films. Um, and she was following us in very early days of training. Um, and filming everything we did from an anthropological point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and she started, she was, you know, really becoming a really competent filmmaker and she had an insight into the parkour world. So um, her name's Julie Angel. And, and we, and she, she started making films of our training and we put them on, on YouTube. And so we started to realize that we could very consciously showcase the training and the behind the scenes of parkour. Um, what it really is, not just the spectacle end product you see on a movie of some guy jumping from building to building, but the training, the practice, the discipline. We can film that and we can talk about it and we can put those videos online. So we could consciously 
not fight the spectacle side of it, but we could supplement that side of it by saying, yes, there's a spectacle and this is how those guys end up doing their spectacle. Here's the training. So most of the videos that we produced in the first sort of four or five years of PKJN were, were, tr were educational videos. They were all about the workshops. They were all about the classes. They were all about tutorials. Um, mm. You know, we did a series called Behind the Jump, mm -hmm. which was just talking about uh, where it would just be a five minute video on practitioners training and talking about their training and talking about how this particular movement came about and how they got good at it. Um, so uh, that was a real education piece. And then we wrote articles about it. We wrote, you know, I did loads of hundreds of interviews for newspapers, radio, mm. TV, you know, and, and we ju you just learn to, you learn what you have to say. <laughs> And the language you have to use to be able to communicate it to these people that aren't really going to understand it, maybe the way you understand it, but you can put it in, you can use terminology that they will understand. So we so have they, to put so it they're in, not, they don't have this visceral pushback. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you find that, you know, there are some people that go, oh, that's crazy, that's dangerous. But when you explain it, when you show it to them, you find that there are a lot of people in many industries who listen and go, I get it. You know, I get it. I see, I see the benefit physically. I see why it's good for your fitness and health. I see why it makes you stronger. I see why it's psychologically healthy. I see why it boosts your mental health. I get it. And then they go, okay, can you come and teach our school? Or can you come and teach our gym? Or can you come right. and teach our soldiers? Or, I mean, you're a good example, right? In the, um, when I met you was early on in the period where we were introducing parkour to the fitness industry. Mm -hmm. um, and I met you at a fitness event, probably in Asia. Yeah, I think that's right. It was Asia or the UK? I can't remember which. It might have been in Asia. I think it was in Asia. The first one, maybe in Asia. I can't remember. I think maybe. But um, and um, you know, you probably didn't know much about parkour at that stage. Um, and we, I remember, you know, we the reason we the reason I met you is because you had your TRX frames, the big rigs, in the same right. room we were going to teach, and we were playing on the rigs. And we, and I was thinking, if we could use those rigs for our workshop. It'll be super cool. <laughs> so I remember we, who's the guy that owns those rigs. So we sort of eventually we found out it was you and we spoke to you and we're like, can we use rigs? And you, and you were like, yeah, man, you totally let's use it. But, you know, and you, when we sort of explained what we were doing and spoke to you a bit about Parkour, which you knew some about, but not, probably not in great detail, but you were, because of your experience in fitness and training, very quickly, you know, there was no pushback. You were like, yep, I see the benefit of that. That's awesome training go for it use the rigs um mm -hmm. and you know you you were very open-minded to it so uh and i think that is you know there are people that aren't open-minded to it there are many people at events like that they're just like this is crazy these guys are crazy but um you know you're a good example of someone in a very who ha who's already dealing in a very um established industry um mm -hmm. where people are very safety conscious understandably so um and very health conscious but you were able to go yeah that's that's cool. That's basically similar to our training. Just you know, has a different protocol and a different method. But I can see that it's a discipline and great. So, well, I come from a climbing background too, so it might have had something to do with it. Yeah, and you're a wild Canadian <laughs> who, who like climbs mountains and skis and shit. So you do crazy stuff too. Um, but you know, you also you know like this super experienced educator in TRX and fitness who who you know understands a very. Um, you know, and understands exactly the terminology you have to use to talk to that industry and those people. Um, and, and so it's actually, you know, when it was, it was meeting people like you and other people in that industry where I realized, okay, you know, we kind of have to learn their terminology. So we have to learn how to put it in their language because we're talking about the same principles. But when we talk about, you know, the way we, the words we use are not the words they use, but actually it's the same thing. So I've mm. just got to learn their language. 
so that I can convey what we're doing in their terminology. And the first time I taught in the fitness industry, the first courses we ran for the fitness industry, for fitness professionals, you know, the language that we were using probably wasn't right. You know, um, some of them enjoyed it. Some of them, they all enjoyed it. Some of them loved it and, and grabbed it. But quite, quite a few of them were probably like, yeah, this is still a bit, still a bit out there for me, still a bit crazy. Yeah. Um, and that's because we weren't using the right language. We weren't, we weren't packaging it correctly. We weren't, we weren't communicating well to, in the language they needed to hear it. So it was actually learning from guys like you that helped us get across into that industry um, and adapting. That was the thing that we were, we were quite adaptive. So, you know, parkour right. is an adaptive discipline. So we go to an industry and we go, okay, this is what they need physically and technically. This is, what, this is how they need us to talk about it. Um, this is what they need us to take out and remove that they're probably not interested in um, or they don't need uh, and would adapt it to that industry. Say we had to do it the same with the military. We had to do mm. the same with kids, with the same with schools, the same with uh, physically disabled people. So let's talk because just, just how you ended that is really interesting. Can you describe a little more detail about the breadth of what Parkour Generations does? Because, I mean, your business, as we talked, we've talked a lot about the performance side, you know, doing with movies, commercials and mm. stuff. We've talked a little bit about the fitness side and, and what you started there. We haven't talked about your own facility yet in London, but there's also, a, mm. like, there's a breadth of work that you guys do from, you know, across schools in fit as a fitness facility itself, obviously the performance side of it. Uh, and then there's some some other consulting work that you get hired to do as well. Can you talk just a, a little bit about kind of the mm. breadth of what your business entails? Yeah, I, it's it's grown, you know, into a lot of different <laughs> industries, and it's we're still opening up new sort of divisions and departments, um, and going into new um, new kind of worlds even today. So 15 years later or whatever, but um, and we do a lot. Um, you know, anything from, I mean, coaching and teaching and then running, you know, then we run coaching qualifications and fitness qualifications worldwide. Mm -hmm. And, and we teach, we have programs for schools and we have programs that teach school staff how to deliver it. And then we, we also perform of course. Um, and then we design parkour equipment and facilities. Um, we obviously retail, you know, clothing and, and some products around it. Um, we do, we train the military, we do penetration testing where we'll test the security, um, the security, um, how, how secure a facility is either to get in or out um, using parkour. Um, you know, we will consult for all manner of things from, you know, theaters to, um, from theater shows to, um, you know, pr pretty much anything almost any industry you can imagine is at some stage, some person said, how can we in some way use parkour to improve what we do, which is really weird. And we, and we may not have had that industry at the time. We may not have had that, that um, service at the time or that product, but our approach, because we didn't come into it thinking we want to make a fitness business or we want to make a, a retail business or we want to make a gym business. We, we didn't come into it thinking like that. We just were doing parkour. As I explained, it was, we just one day woke up and we're like, Oh, this is what we do. We're parkour professionals. Anyone that came along and talked to us, we'd be like, can we do that? Can we apply parkour to that? I bet we can. Let's do it. <laughs> and right. We just, we just invent something and it, and it would kind of, and then we'd refine it and it would work. Um, and you know, that, that I think now, and now we, you know, now I, now I spend a, a a fair amount of time, I suppose, talking about business and talking to business students at universities about mm -hmm. how to be an entrepreneur and how to, how to make your idea come to life. And it's quite weird because I never had any formal business training, but you know, um, you kind of, you go through the process and that's how you get good at it. And you realize that 
one of the things I will often tell these students is that, um, you know, whatever idea you have that you think is too crazy or too out there or too stupid to become a business and, and to, to, to be sustainable and to do some good in the world and, you know, to make a living out of whatever you, idea you've got, bear in mind that we built a multinational company out of jumping off shit. You know, that, that is our idea. And we made a multinational company out of it that's lasted 15 years. And all mm. we do really is jump off stuff really well. So whatever idea you've got, it is not as crazy or stupid as our idea. Um, <laughs> that's, that can be quite empowering. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you guys basically, you just, you just made up what you do. You made up an industry, you know. So of all of that stuff that you just listed, which is so expansive, what, what would you say is the core piece of your business? Um, teaching. Yeah. Teaching for me, you know, I've been teaching martial arts since I was very young and then I was an I was a university lecturer in, in Japan and, um, uh, and for me, you know, we started coaching that was, you know, we started performing first, but when we started coaching, that became very big, very quickly. And that was the thing that I loved doing. I was never really that interested in the performance side. Um, and for me, the strength of parkour and, and, you know, the, the real value it has to bring to the world is through physically giving it as a discipline to someone and getting them to practice and experience it and seeing the benefit that has on their life, train, training them, as we say, train the individual, not just the athlete, train mm. the whole individual, you know? So we're looking to help people become better versions of themselves on, on a, on a, on a very holistic level, not just better athletes. Um, and, that seeing those changes and being able to travel the world and you know i've taught in something like 45 countries now and run workshops all over the world and you know and and so many different people types of people and seeing the benefit that it can have um that you can actually make a difference to someone's life that was the most important thing early right from the first class we taught i think that was when i was like this more than the martial arts more than anything else this, I taught, this is really cool and i can it's just so flexible. Anyone can try this. Anyone can learn from it and it will benefit anyone. Um, and you know, so teaching was at our core and it still is, it's still the basic principle of what, of, of everything that we do. Even when we're doing other stuff, we're mm -hmm. trying to sort of help people learn and become better and challenge themselves, even if it's not teaching. So when you went through that laundry list of all the different things that, that your business is, is, is doing, you mentioned one, you glided through it, but it's one of my favorites. You, you call it penetration training. Or penetration the, 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 testing. Penetration yep. testing. Sorry, penetration Pen testing. Yep. And so, um, essentially, I'm going to sum that up for folks, and then you can you can describe it. It's basically cat burglar for hire. So <laughs> in, in in this in this way, it's a company with us who's decided they want to test their security against people who are super creative about getting up over and 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 into places that they really shouldn't be. So can you tell me a little bit about um, your cat, your cat burglar for hire uh, wing of your business and, and how much of that business do you end up doing? Yeah, it's, it's almost like the black ops element of what we do. <laughs> it's, almost like the, it's almost like the dark side because it kind of comes from the dark side in a way of parkour in that, you know, back in the day, and, and I'm not saying we do this at all now, um, but um, back in the day when we were training um, and parkour was a lot wilder and more raw, um, uh, and there were very few people doing it. Part of our training would be, you know, it was quite common to do kind of what we used to call night missions and where, where you'd go training and you would explore, you would use your skills to explore places where let's say probably you wouldn't be able to explore in the day. Um, so, um, 
uh, and those that was an interesting way of us testing our skills and, and going places where you know get, getting to urbex urban exploration is, is another discipline but there was a crossover there and that we would we would really enjoy exploring places that maybe no one in no one in a city would normally see like can we get up to those rooftops kind of thing you're not meant to go up there but can we get up there and see what's up there that no one else in the city millions of people in the city never see those rooftops or these tunnels or you know these particular this particular weird element of the city that's closed off for various reasons obviously some of that is probably not 100 percent legal it's legal it's just not 100 percent legal but um uh, so you know we'd uh, we'd we'd have to do that we did that stuff a lot and so there was that element of what we did we didn't talk about it when we publicized it but um uh and then you know the penetration testing came about because we didn't again we didn't plan it so we got a phone call one day from a high security mental health facility um that was brand new and they called us up and said look we just built this place um we haven't opened it but we want to know if we're a little bit worried that some of the um patients um might be able to get from one of the courtyards to one of the rooftops or from one of the courtyards to 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 somewhere else where they shouldn't be we're not sure actually if someone can do that or not um so we thought do you guys do do you guys do that do you do you test facilities do you use your skills like and we did right so i was on the phone and i was like we do that we don't do that but i was like uh yeah yeah we do that yeah yeah we have that service so um and they were like great can we hire you to come in and do it and we were like yep we'll, we'll be there next week but the phone out like hmm okay so now we've got to invent a protocol that tests the security measures of a facility okay so we started thinking about it we brainstormed it we you know put stuff together and um and we and we went there and and uh, in the course of a day tested this facility and how secure it was whether you could get from here to here or here to here um and we i think on that day one of our guys got from the one of the courtyards one of the exercise courtyards to the public car park in something like 13 seconds so he got over the walls and all that sort of oh, yeah. stuff in 13 seconds and they were like shit because they just built this building and, and uh, you know they were like oh man but they didn't realize what humans can do if they're driven mm -hmm. and motivated and athletic sure. so so the, but they loved it they were like that's fantastic thank you we gave them a full report of of all the, <laughs> well, all the floors. now we got to find a good fence builder yeah now we got to now we got to rebuild everything but um you know we pointed out these are the floors this is how you could get in and out these are the these are the problems with the architecture um and you know go away and fix it if you want so and then we went away from that and thought oh yeah, we can do pen testing. So, so we then um, we then advertised it as a service, um, and Vice magazine heard about it. it. We did it as a service, sort of unknown for about eighteen months, and then uh, just a word of mouth, really. Um, and then Vice magazine got hold of it and did an article on it, and suddenly we were inundated by with people wanting to know about it. And and we probably get about ten requests a year from TV companies and production studios wanting to do a documentary series about it. Really? There's, there's three currently being negotiated. <laughs> That's um, amazing. But uh, we, all, we turn them down most of the time because we can't, mm. um, it's not something we can easily show. And most of the clients mm -hmm. we work for on that front and have worked for. Don't they, really want them to show you how they can break into your facility. 100% not. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they're, they're, you know, most of the time we sign it non-disclosure agreements to say we won't talk about it. We won't even name the facility and we definitely won't show the work. So, mm -hmm. um, 
So we can't really do those documentaries most of the time and we don't really want to because we don't want to glamorize. Most of them want to glamorize it in kind of reality TV. For sure. Yeah. yeah, we don't. It's not about that. They want to showcase like it's like these guys are professional thieves and we're not at all. This is a very, right. it's a very, it's a very above board. Pen testing is a, is a, is a thing that exists before we existed. It was mm-hmm. just never done in physical ways. It's done normally through virtual testing or electronic testing or testing the mechanics of locks. Sure. Um, red test, you know, red teams and stuff like that. Um, we came along and, and did it in a parkour way, a physical way, but it, you know, it's a very above board service. It's not mm. like we're not. No, I wouldn't accuse you of anything below no. board. <laughs> or it's not. I mean, not publicly. <laughs> Tell me what are the greatest challenges you're facing right now in your business and, and what are you doing to, to counter them? I mean, obviously we're, we're coming out of, of, uh, of a lockdown and, and that's, that's part of it, but even beyond, uh, mm. you know, the challenges of COVID-19, what, uh, what do you think are some of the greatest challenges that, that, that you're facing right now business-wise? Uh, I mean, business-wise, obviously, as you say, yeah, the whole you know, COVID-19 situation has obviously been a big challenge for us because we've had to close all our facilities worldwide and stop all the classes, stop all the courses, stop, stop all the movie work, everything, everything just stopped pretty much. And we had to shift everything online and, and, and that worked really well and got us through it. And, and now we're starting to open up again, so it's all good. But we've had basically the same challenges as everyone in the fitness industry. Um, so you know, nothing unique about that um the 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 challenges we have going forwards um and and these aren't necessarily so much like business challenges i suppose because we'll continue to grow in those ways and, and we we continue to expand into new areas that we're interested in basically just because i like trying new stuff and seeing if we can do things so we will we will we will constantly try to we will constantly bring parkour into new areas and solve those problems as we go as to how we can navigate that that particular world um my, the challenge now really is not so much for me it's not so much a business challenge uh, it's more of a challenge of parkour is growing so fast um and you know now they want it in the olympics and the, the the international gymnastics federation are trying to sort of appropriate it and claim that it's part of gymnastics which it definitely isn't <laughs> um so there's these big sort of sort of physiological uh, not physiological sort of um political you know and sort of almost cultural battles going on around the world around parkour um and so there's those they're they're difficult to navigate but in a way almost the the thing that i've always been very interested in and aware of right from the start was that this is going to grow very fast and as it grows it automatically by nature it changes and dilutes as anything does right mm. um so it, it adapts it dilutes it changes people come in they they approximate it they twist it they exploit it that's happened from day one and what i've always been aware of is what i've been um had a concern about is i don't want the the heart of it the gem the 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 sort of gem that is the true nature of the discipline because that's the really unique beautiful thing about it Mm. i don't want that to be lost you know i don't want it to just become commodified and and made into uh you know and and sort of um diluted yeah lose its soul you know and 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 sort of put cotton wool around it and 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 reduced to something that is just an approximation a shadow of parkour so that it can be commercialized and, and sold around the world we've never done that we've been very clear about not doing that um and we've turned down some massive business opportunities uh as a result of that um uh because we didn't want to see it diluted in that way or, or you know and for me that that's the most important challenge is how can we make sure that the 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 thing that i learned that changed me so much and had such a powerful impact on my life 
Um, how can I make sure that that particular essence of parkour is still available to someone in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, even when we're gone and not teaching and when all the founders are dead and all the second, first, second, third mm-hmm. generation guys are gone, how can we make sure that someone 70, 80, hundred years from now can still access it, can still learn it in that way if they want to. So a lot of my thinking now is about how can I make sure it, not preserve it without changing because everything changes, but how can I make sure the essence gets passed on um, and, and taught to each generation if they want it. Um, and that is a lot of that is in our coach education program adapt. It's so much about that um, because the world uh, from my way of thinking, the world doesn't really need more people who can teach how to run or jump or do push-ups or do you know or climb stuff or there's so many good teachers of that in the world and there's so many great disciplines that teach those things parkour has its athletic component it's very important and it's in some ways very unique but that's not what makes parkour unique you know what makes parkour unique is this this sort of um this wild essence of it this this discipline this test of fear this holistic test of yourself um you know very visceral thing that uniqueness i want to see that continued so that's my biggest challenge probably is 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 finding ways to make sure that gets carried on so you mentioned fear specifically just a second ago what is your approach to 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 fear in in terms of you know i mean you're still practicing actively you're still training i'm sure you're still at at times pushing your own envelope because that's the kind of person you are Mm. so and with that there's you know, you, as you start to get close to that edge and risk starts to go, to, to go up and you, you've just got to start to manage that and fear is part of the equation. So can you talk a little bit about how you, how do you deal with, with uh, like what is your approach to fear on a, on a maybe a, a psychological level? So my approach has probably evolved over the years and now, uh, and, I, and I spend, you know, a lot of time doing talks on fear and, and presentations mm-hmm. on it that, that, I'm, sure. I'm really i'm really into the science of fear and the um the, the neuro the neurochemistry around it and all that stuff um uh, and and parkour yeah you do kind of become an expert in fear in a way on a visceral on a on a you know on an embodied level because you in parkour training even if you're not doing anything that's particularly like high risk you're you're you will still experience fear because there is still the idea that you could you know bang your knee or you know mm-hmm. roll, roll your ankle a little bit or just get a little bit of a graze and a lot of people for a lot of people that fear is is quite strong um so you, you feel fear from day one in parkour and you will feel it uh, on the final day you train you know when you when you stop training it's always there um and therefore you become very familiar with it you become very f- good friends with, you have to become good friends with it um mm-hmm. so my view now and when we, the way we teach now is that um, fear is a natural um, sort of uh, substance of emotion. So fear itself is, is a raw emotion that is there for a, for a very good reason. It's there because it, you know, it's a, it's a safety thing keeps you alive and keeps you mm-hmm. on the edge and when you need to be. So don't, don't try and resist your fear and don't try and crush it and don't try and blast through it with anger or whatever. It's there. It's there for a reason. The problem is, the human condition is such that what we do is we, we, we go through, we have experiences in life and we create narratives that create stories, which we then attach to that emotion. So this is how phobias arise. You know, you can have an irrational phobia of, you know, trees, for example, you might be afraid of trees. 
these are phobias that exist, right? Um, and there's no, it's not rational at all, but mm. you attach a narrative to the emotion. So the problem is with the narrative, the story, um, not fear itself, the emotion. The problem is what narrative are you telling yourself? Um, and do you, well, are you happy with that narrative? Are you happy to be afraid of trees? Are you happy to be afraid of spiders? Are you happy to be afraid of the dark? Are you happy to be afraid of heights? Mm. Um, cause these are not natural fears. They're not innate. There's only two fears that you're born with, which are the fear, fear of falling, which is not the same as the fear of heights, um, fear of falling over smacking your head and the fear of loud noises. Those two you're born with, they're hardwired. You can't get rid of them. Every other fear is learned. Like the fear of death learned you don't know about death when you're born you have no concept of it um you know all these things fear of the dark it's learned right mm -hmm. so you you learn these things um and therefore you can unlearn them so the question then is don't see it as a bad thing if you're afraid of something try and understand it try and understand why you're afraid of that thing what is it specifically that you're afraid of and get specific um and then you will create a relationship with fear by which it will teach you things and you will learn from it and it will allow you to do things as you demonstrate to it that you have the competence to deal with that thing. It will then back away and go, yep, I see you're competent enough now. I'm going to shut up. So you become friends with fear and you learn to listen to it. Um, and you learn that it actually becomes, it becomes essential. It becomes a guide on your journey because as I said earlier, the call of the jump, right? If you're, if you're one of the workshops we will commonly run, which is a breaking called breaking the jump, um, uh, is that we will ask people to go when we've given them a certain amount of training, we'll ask them, right, go spread out in this area, go and find, look at a movement or a jump or a challenge. And I want you to look around until you find something that makes you feel a little bit afraid, you know, not like in, in shock, <laughs> but you must look at it and you must sort of feel your heart rate go up a bit. You must feel a little bit of anxiety around looking at that movement and what it would be like to try that jump. Um, and then, that's the jump we're going to work on and then we give them a protocol to work through it. And the reason we say that is because the, the one that you're afraid of, the only reason you're afraid of it is because as you look at it, something in you knows that you might do it. So some part of you that knows you might be able to do that and, and your, your brain is sort of saying to, you, saying to itself, this idiot might make me do this jump, therefore I'm going to sort of put fear in the way as a block. If we ask you... If we ask you to look at something, if we take a beginner up to a, a crazy jump, a crazy advanced, difficult, ridiculous jump that only the best athletes could do, or even an impossible jump, right? Mm -hmm. And so say you took someone to one, to a super high building in New York, and you said, look at that building over there, 100 feet away. I want you to jump between the two, right? Impossible jump. No human can do it. If I asked anyone to look at that and think about it, no one would be afraid. No one would feel any fear at all. Mm -hmm. They would look at it and they would laugh. They would just be like, ha ha, that's a nice idea. But they right. wouldn't be afraid. And the reason they wouldn't be afraid is because there's no, they know there's no way they're going to try that. Right. Whereas if I ask them to look at a jump 10 feet away at the same height and say, think about jumping to that, now they will be afraid. And the reason they're afraid is they, because it's possible. They look at it and sure. think that is within my capability. So what that teaches us is that fear, your fear is normally a signpost to what you are capable of. Um, and therefore you should listen to it. Because it's, you'll only be afraid of the things that you can probably do. Maybe not today, maybe tomorrow in a month or a year's training. But if you're afraid of it, probably that's because some part of you knows you can do it. It's a very interesting concept. And that's super useful, yeah. And you, and you learn that in parkour. You learn to listen to that straight away. You learn to, early on, you realize that if I'm afraid of it, okay, that probably means I can do it. And I'm going, I'm going to make sure I can do it. I'm going to train. I'm going to build my skills, build my strength. And then I'm going to come and do it, you know. Um, and if you're not afraid of it, it's either way too easy. 
it's either way within your comfort zone mm-hmm. or it's or it's something that's way beyond your comfort zone and you're not ready for wow that's a that's a, a very very powerful concept i love that a lot um all right i've got uh we're, we're gonna have to i could i could talk to you all day but we'll have to we've been we've been already rolling for probably longer than i'm supposed to but i want to <laughs> finish with um with uh we've got uh, this thing called five and five all right so right. i'm going to ask you five questions and uh and, and, and your job is just to, just to sh- shoot out your answer. What are you most excited about right now or focused on in your own training right now? The thing I'm most excited about now at the moment um, is oddly probably running. So <laughs> really? it sounds crazy. But um, I, yeah, I haven't done uh, since lockdown. Um, mm-hmm. I've been doing more running, just distance running, like yeah. 5Ks and things, than I have done for many years. Um, and I don't know why. It just felt natural. It just felt like a good thing to do to go out and put, put some music on and go running. Um, you know, because we weren't allowed to tra- travel to the gyms or, you know, or even travel to park or spots, really. So you're only allowed to stay close to your house and use the parks around you. So some, for some reason, I got in, I did more running and I remembered how much I enjoy running. I really do enjoy it. Um, and so that's the kind of thing I'm most excited at the moment about is the fact that I've sort of got back into running, which is not, you know, people might be that's like, That's interesting. Have so so have you got like a, a race in your future or is it uh, just, just more like your own kind of individual time trial um, or not even not, not even that i mean i i, I don't have my, in my my methodology of training is not really and in parkour in general i suppose my, the, the the old way of training is to set challenges yes we would set crazy challenges like can you crawl for five miles or can you do this or can you do the thousand jumps or whatever um but they were more like can you hit a target can you achieve something mm-hmm. it, they were less a case of can i improve my time sort of thing right. so i've never run with that idea oh, i want to be able to improve my time and get really good at it and i've never been interested in in comp- competition or racing or sport or anything right. like that in that way so no it's nothing like that it's no there's no goal in mind it's just i'm enjoying just, running i want to get i want to get really i want to get better at it i want it to be feel more comfortable so that i can so that the 5k i do tomorrow feels better than the 5k i felt yesterday so that and then i you know run a bit further or run a bit faster so running and then sprinting i've got back into sort of more sprint training as well mm-hmm. um within that which i really love um, and it's just the feeling of it. It's just the feeling of running and sprinting and it's very meditative and I just kind of love it. I've fallen back in love with that. So I'm doing more of that now. That's yeah. very cool. Well, when you get, when you get out this way, we'll have to go on a mountain run. Not with you, man. For sure. I'm not going to oh, run with you. You're like a, no, you're like no, a no. crazy mountain runner. I'm not going to be no, able to no, keep no, up. I not, not these days. Not these days. I'm not. <laughs> so, um, no who, way. who are you currently inspired by? Who am I currently inspired by? In anything, not just in training? In anything. Just... Like, yeah, no, in anything. Who, who is it that, like, you're, you're watching going, oh, that's, that's really, really cool? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, two, probably, probably, there's many areas. I, I've, I'm trying to improve in many different ways in many things, but I'm, I'm probably currently very inspired by filmmakers and screenwriters. Um, which may sound weird, but I've always been, a, I've always also written um, stories and, and, and things since I was a kid. So, and I've always been heavily into movies. And a couple of years ago, I got into the idea of screenplay writing and transitioning my stories into screenplays. Um, so now I, I sort of study that. Um, and I listen to loads of podcasts with expert movie makers and famous directors and listen to their ideas and screenwriters and work at seeing how they do that, that craft. Um, and I, I find it super, super fascinating and really amazing what they put together. Um, the whole process is just, inc- I think it's really incredible of filmmaking. Um, and even down to the ideas of mo- of sc- composition of score, you know, the, mu- the, the music for movies. I'm, I'm really into that. I really love movie compositions, mm. music compositions. So, I, so 
compositions like by guys like Hans Zimmer and Howard Shaw and James Horner, all these amazing mm-hmm. composers, you know, and listening to their process, listening to them talk in, in, in podcasts and documentary and you just come away going, wow, they're, you know, so creative, so incredibly good at their craft. Um, and you know, that, that's very inspirational for me because I, I want to get kind of that good at that stuff. Fascinating. That's very cool. So you've always, one of the things I've always really, really loved about our own exchanges is, is just you're very principled in, in the way you approach your life and in the way you approach everything. Can you tell me like, what are the, like the, if you, had, you could tell me about the, like the two or three guiding principles that you kind of live your life by, <laughs> even if it's just one. What's the thing that, that, that's there all the time for you? Uh, so when I was pretty young, I mean, I read a lot of philosophy in my teenage years um, and a lot of very esoteric stuff and a lot of very traditional philosophy and Greek and Asian philosophies and things like that. Anyway, so, so I had a very kind of weird way of thinking, I suppose. But when in my late teens, I kind of developed my, my personal philosophy, sort of, it's sort of a joke, but it's sort of serious. Um, and I haven't really thought about it for many years, but it still probably, I guess, applies. Um, in the, I, I basically had a, a sort of binary philosophy of like there are there are these there are two answers to every situation and if one answer doesn't work the other one will um uh and the first the first answer is no matter what situation you're in the first answer i came up with was be cool as in stay calm just be cool relax don't take it too, don't take anything too seriously don't take yourself too seriously um don't get angry don't respond immediately don't have knee-jerk reactions just stay cool you know, whatever the situation. And if that doesn't solve the situation, then my second, my other element was fuck it. <laughs> As in, if you can't do anything about it, if you can't control it and you can't change it, then don't worry about it. Just, you know, don't worry about it. You can't control it. You can't do anything about it. So, and that, I guess over time, I realized that that is, that is a, a, a very crude, basic way of, th- of saying that there are many things in the world you cannot control. In fact, almost everything is beyond your control. The only things you can control are your thoughts and your, and therefore your reactions to what happens. So that's all you can choose. So they're the only things to worry about. They're the only things to, to, to really focus on because everything else you can't control. But if you control those really well, then maybe you can actually create purposeful outcomes that benefit people and benefit the world and, and achieve your goals and achieve others goals and, and help people and whatever. So, but don't worry about anything you cannot control. Don't get upset about it and such and such because you can't control it. So, but you can control your thoughts and therefore your, and therefore your reactions. So that I suppose is probably been my guiding principle, um, is, is self-work. And, and that I guess, you know, translates in modern speak into what is now called the growth mindset, I suppose, which is, you know, the idea that anything that happens, see it as an opportunity to learn and improve yourself, no matter how, terrible and bad it is um see it as an opportunity to learn improve and get better uh and maybe and maybe come out the other side with at least at least a bit of learning from it um and that that maybe can be of use to people uh in some way so so i suppose that probably probably be um be what it came down to yeah um that's probably my, my kind of guiding principles now i suppose very cool um Outside of parkour, traditional fitness, what are your greatest physical passions? Um, You've got, you got martial arts, parkour, or the, or the, you know, that we've talked a little bit about them. We yeah, get beyond yeah. that. 
So I also, I also really like, I like a lot of things, but um, I like a lot of physical disciplines, um, anything that kind of tests the body and challenges the mind and, and tests your skills. But the things I really, the physical experiences that I've loved the most in life, um, which I have thought about is probably one, it's definitely my top five physical experiences ever is skydiving. Um, you know, jumping out of a plane by yourself with a parachute, not, sure. not tandem, just yeah. jumping out of a plane. That is incredible. Um, and if, have you done skydiving? I have, I have. All right. Yeah. So, you know, are you, you, um, you're probably like ridiculously qualified. No, 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 I know I'm not at all. In fact, um, so given that I've only done it one time and, uh, it wasn't, it was a static jump, not a, uh, right. not, not a, um, not tandem free jump. Free so I did get that whole free fall thing, at least for longer than four or five seconds it takes for your shoot to open. But, um, I, I do understand the idea of like, you're in this tiny little plane, and in my case, you got out there and you put your foot on the wheel and your other foot's like waving around in space. You got a hold of the strut and then the instructor says one, two, three and slaps your thigh and you let go. Yeah. And that whole, that whole process of, you know, letting go and trying to get in your position and, and, and going down is, um, is something else. It's just, absolutely. yeah. So you uh, weren't I, tandem. You, you weren't tandem as well. You jumped out. No, no, I jumped. I didn't have to pull anything. I didn't have to make yeah. any of those kinds of decisions. But yeah. that, that feeling of being out there and letting go, to me, that would be, and I think, you know, obviously with mastery, and we've got a few, um, uh, one of our master instructors in Denmark is actually a master jumper, and he, he um, it's what he does. And so to talk to him is, is incredible. But that, that whole idea of being out there on that plane, and again, not unfamiliar to me. It was un, unusual. It was definitely mm. like that, that flow state thing where you're like, this is outside of what my norm is. <laughs> yep. And, you know, like, okay, and jumping, letting go, and trying to find that was, um, it's an amazing experience for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a moment you never forget, I think. The first, the first time you jump, Mm-hmm. And and it gets better every time you jump. I think it gets it gets better. But but the first one is I remember that that was you know really powerful. Um, and I my experience of it was I thought I was really surprised and that we I wanted to me and a friend wanted to do it. We'd never done it. We'd never even done a tandem jump. And we thought okay, let's just go and do skydiving. So we 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 started a qualification, the the sort of advanced free fall qualification. And you and you um, on day one. So we turned up on day one. They gave us a book to read the night before, like a PDF on like how to open a parachute and all this sort of stuff and things right. and what position you have to be. Then we turned up on day one and I thought there'd be like a long training protocol and you'd tandem out a few times and all that because I coach, right? So I kind of know mm-hmm. this progressive approach. And they were like, so what we're going to do today is we're going to give you about four or five hours of classroom stuff. Um, you're going to sort of try a parachute rig, hang from a ceiling. You're going to lie on a table and get the arch position. We're going to show you all the things you have to do when a parachute goes wrong, how to fix it. Um, we're going to show you the techniques, the, the, the signs you have to make in the air and how to check your altimeter. And then you're going to jump out the plane at the end of the day. And I was like, <laughs> wait, wait, we're going to jump out today like by ourselves mm-hmm. and free fall for 45 seconds and then pull a chute and then find the landing spot by ourselves. And he was like, yeah, I was like, Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so we did that. So day one, you're up in this plane and you know, you're going to just jump out and you got 45. Yeah. And you're like, I'm going to jump out of a plane. I've never done this before. And I've got a free fall and you know, yeah. do everything right. So anyway, hilarious story around it as well. And I, so I, I was super into like studied everything. Got the, so I jumped out. It was the best experience ever. You know, I was super focused on the training. The training was awesome. So I just did everything they told me to do did the 45 second free fall. Most amazing thing, just like you, like when you mm-hmm. jump out, you're just like, this is incredible. You free fall, you open the chute, suddenly it's tranquil and serene. Mm-hmm. You fly down, you land, 
you know, I remember get, I landed and got, I immediately got, got my phone out and like texted some of my friends saying, skydiving is the most amazing thing ever. You must do it. Like, but that was the first thing I did when I got it. Um, my friend who went with me, who I won't name, he, um, he, he was, he was there with me as well. Safe, safe. He's a real sort of, he loves this sort of stuff. He'd never done it before though. Um, he, he did all the training and then he jump. He, he comes to jump out. One of the signs you're given, you're taught on, on that day is that if the, inst- the instructor jumps next to you, right? So they're floating, they're floating down with you sort of thing, making sure you're doing everything right. Mm-hmm. So one of the signs they can give you is that they do that in front of your face. Um, and that means, um, so it's basically a pointing symbol, but they don't point to you cause you couldn't see it. So they do that. And that means you pull your parachute now. It means you've gone too low below the, 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 you know, the, the safe height to pull it, pull it now. So if you see that in front of your eyes, pull your parachute, right? So <laughs> he jumps out, he's falling down. He's, he's falling down. The first thing he thinks is, this is amazing. Like the view is amazing. You see the curve of the earth. He's just like, so he totally forgets all his training. Doesn't do any of the altimeter checks or anything like that. None of the parachute checks, or whatever. He's just falling. The instructors, either side of him, there's two instructors with him. They get to the height where you're meant to pull the chute, right? That he's not, hasn't pulled it. He's not, he's not doing anything. He's not responding in any way. So they do that in front of him, right? They put this figure, they put the figure in front of him. So he's falling and he's, the finger goes boom. And he's like, what? He like looks over. He thinks they're pointing at something, right? So he like, what? Looks over because he's forgotten his training. So he keeps falling. So the other instructor does it in front of his face. He's like, what? Looks over the other way. <laughs> so he thinks they're pointing at something to point out like how beautiful the view is or something like that. Right. So he's falling, 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 falling. And one of the instructors had to reach out and pull his chute for him. And if they hadn't have done that, he would have just fallen. Just to his death. in the ground. <laughs> yeah. So obviously he failed that because that's, that's your level. If you do that, you pass your level one. All you have to do is pull your chute at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't do it. So he failed his level one. Hilarious. Right. Um, Amazing story. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so, um, is this your life's work? What's next? You're a young guy. Uh, uh, this is part of my life. So, I mean, your life's work isn't over until you're dead, probably. I guess. So, um, mm-hmm. this is definitely an important part of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a, it's been the last, you know, sort of eighteen, nineteen years. It's it's been a huge part of my training and my lifestyle and my and my community, the community I've got to meet around it and. You know, it's traveled, it's taken me around the world. It's given me a business and a profession. Um, it's allowed me to interact with industries I would never have interacted with normally, you know. Um, so I've met so many awesome people around the world. Um, that is a huge part of my life, huge chapter of my life. And, and, and it will continue to be, you know, going forwards. It will it'll probably, it will never go away. I'll always train parkour. I think I'll never stop training. So, um, but it's definitely not the only thing I'm interested in doing. As I say, you know, I'm very interested in, in um, spending more time writing. Um, which I sort of had to put on pause a lot when I was developing the the business, but there's a lot more writing that I want to do. There's a lot more new new skills that I want to learn. Um, I'm very much uh, I'm about to start doing training with um, with firearms and sort of um, tactical training with close quarter battle with um, with with uh, with um, uh, to learn from special forces guys um, and and. The reason is that I've, I've studied most other fighting forms and martial and melee weapons, hand weapons and throwing weapons and bows, but I've never really learned how to use firearms in any way. So it's kind of a big gap in my training. So that's, that's a new path of training I'm embarking on. Uh, I saw so some is, social media of you shooting at mushrooms or something like that about a year ago. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, cl clays. We just put a load of clays on a path. That was in the States, it looked, yeah. It looked like mushrooms to me. Uh, yeah, they were little <laughs> orange. I was probably hitting the mushrooms because I was missing the clays, yeah. So I was probably, it looked like I was going to be... <laughs> um, but yeah, that was in, unsurprisingly in the States um, where I got fortunate to spend a little bit of time with some guys who were very experienced with, um, mm. with firearms who got to show me everything and got the basics and, and I really enjoyed it. So, so I want to learn that as a skill. I think it's really cool. So there's so many things I still want to learn, you know, mm. and, and do and practice. Uh, but, you know, there's, um, there's only so much time in the day. So as That's I'm sure you, you know, you're the same as, as there's so much things you want to read and study and you've got to kind of prioritize that. But this is definitely a part of my life's work. But your life's work isn't over until you're until you're gone, I think. So I'm not entirely sure what, what it will be when I'm gone. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the TRX Procast. As a thank you, we'd like to offer you 30 days of free access to the TRX Training Club, which features hundreds of amazing workouts with some of the best trainers in the world. Get your access by the link in the episode description below.